Amen, amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I don't know, some of you are like, hey, what's with the stand? Sit down. We're trying to make all our Catholics feel at home, okay? So that's, what, that's what that's all about. Hey, welcome, all right? Uh, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 and following, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence before the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. May God add blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your Bible, I hope you do. That's where we are today. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 13 through 21, you see this section in there on fear. It'll take me a little while to get to that part, but we're going to talk about fear and how to be fearless. And so I, I decided to just Google some of the, well, the top 10 fears um, that most of us deal with. And I, I thought about asking you, but I know you guys would lie. You wouldn't be honest. You'd be like, I ain't scared. And that's a lie. So here they are. Here's the top 10 fears, uh, at least according to you know, Google, in, in reverse order. Number 10 is dark. There are people that are afraid of the dark. That's fine. Number nine, zombies. <laughs> that was number nine, zombies. So I think my son had something to do with this, okay, because I don't claim to be a great parent, so we let him watch Walking Dead, and he's obsessed with zombies, always wants to talk about zombies. We were in Academy Sports recently, and he goes, Dad, zombie apocalypse happens right now. What do you do? What do you do? And I go, well, I'm going for the guns. He's like, bad move. You need to get up high on top of the shelves because they don't climb well. So zombies. <laughs> Number eight is strangers. <clears throat> Number seven is flying. Number six is claustrophobia. Number five, needles. Number four, drowning. Number three, bugs, snakes, spiders. Number two, heights. You know what the number one most feared thing in America is? Public speaking. What I'm about to do right now, people are more afraid of that. According to this list, by percentages, by the way, most of you would rather drown in the dark with strangers that are zombies than do what I'm about to do, all right? But (laughs) I ain't scared. And... uh, Part of it is because it's not my message. I just read out of the book, tell you what it says. And, and, and it just made me think about Thursday I was uh, tubing, or Wednesday I was tubing with um, my daughter, Reagan, who's five years old. And she fell off the tube and then got back on. And she said, Daddy, this is awesome. And I was like, Reagan, are you not scared? She looked at me real serious. She said, Daddy, I'm fearless. And so <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. It'll take us a while to get to the fearless part. But get your Bibles. First John chapter 4, beginning in, thir- in verse 13, John says this. John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. So you'll remember, the whole point of 1 John is assurance. It's the assurance of your salvation is in the finished work of Christ, not on whether you're good or bad. It's in the finished work of Christ that, that John wants you to know that you are saved if you are. If you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he says, by this we know that, that we abide in him. That's a relational term. Not just that you're religious, not just that you're becoming better or whatever. That is not the point, but that you abide in him or have a relationship with Jesus. 
That's why this thing that we call 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. That God on high stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, His Son, to come on a search and rescue mission for you so that he, you could love Him because He first loved you. That's what this whole thing is about. And then he says this, by this we know. And that this there is four things. He's going to give you four markers by which you know that you have a relationship with Jesus. Four evidences of the fact that you are in him and he is in you. The first one is this. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the first marker that he gives us of salvation is the gift of the spirit. Now, here's the reality when you talk about the Holy Spirit in church. There's some people that get, get really excited about it. They're like, finally, we're getting to the good stuff, all right? And, and in fact, there are some people that get a little overly excited about it. Have you ever been to one of those churches where they're a little overexcited about the Spirit? I don't know about you. I didn't grow up that way, but I've been to those kind of churches where everything's going fine, and all of a sudden, here comes a lady in a flowy dress with a banner, just running laps like Daytona. And you're like, what got into her? Someone's like, oh, she's just full of the Spirit. I'm like, she's full of something. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's the Spirit. Maybe it's not. Um. And, and, and again, some people kind of ascribe things to the Spirit that the Bible never ascribes to the Spirit. And I've had, I've had people tell me, you know, hey, look, the Spirit was just really moving in my car the other day. I was asking God, dear God, should I ask her out? And then the Spirit moved. I'm like, what do you mean? Like God gave me a sign. What, what, what kind of sign? Well, it was a road sign. And up on the sign, the background on the sign was the same color of her eyes. And the last two digits in the number on the road sign was the, her age. And then in that moment, a song came on and it was our song. And I believe I got little God bumps and I knew it was the Spirit. Like it kind of sounds like the preamble to a restraining order. I'm not sure if that's the Spirit. And so people can kind of ascribe things to the Spirit that the Bible never does. But then, that, that is not the camp I grew up in. I grew up in that other camp. You know, I, I, I was, I'm a recovering Baptist. So functionally for us, the Trinity was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And we related to the Spirit kind of like I relate to my pituitary gland. Like I know it's in there, and I'm sure it's really important, but that's all I have to say about that. And so <clears throat> I'd encourage you to read... Um, a, a book that a friend of mine named J.D. Greer, he's the pastor of a great church in North Carolina, he wrote, and it's called Jesus Continued. Jesus Continued. It's about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And the subtitle of the book is, is why the Spirit in you is better than Jesus beside you. And so if you are a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, <clears throat> then, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. So when the Bible says that your body is a temple, that has nothing to do with what you look like in a bikini. Can I get an Amen. Amen. Praise God. I'm 41 years old. You understand? I don't wear bikinis. But you know what I'm saying. So that's not what it's about. What it means is in the Old Testament, when there was a temple, you know, up to a couple thousand years ago, that, that there was this little room in there called the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God resided. And there was a curtain that separated the Spirit of God from regular people like us. But when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and he says, it is finished, an earthquake cracks right down the middle of Jerusalem and it splits the curtain that separated God's Spirit from God's people from the very top to the very bottom. And then on the day of Pentecost, every single believer that surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ was filled to the brim, was filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. That means every single one of us have been baptized in the Spirit. There's one baptism, it happens one time. And the Spirit is not a potion, He's the third person of the Trinity. So it's not like you run out of some Spirit and you've got to show up here every week and we've got to top you off and then send you back out and you're leaking Spirit everywhere. That's not how it works. That, that God's permanent address here on earth is in the believer, that's me and you. 
that you have the Holy Spirit in you if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit does all kinds of things. He has all kinds of roles. One of the things that Jesus said that the Spirit would do in you, and again, this is evidence that you're a believer in Jesus, is that the Spirit comforts. In fact, that's what Jesus called him. The Comforter will come one day. And so maybe you've bumped into somebody at some point that was a believer in Jesus, and they were going through some excruciating circumstances, and yet you watched the way they handled it. They handled it in such a way that transcended understanding. They had a peace that guarded their heart and mind. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in them. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, not only does He comfort us, but, but another thing that He does is that he, he convicts us, but He never condemns. God in us, the Spirit of God in us, convicts us of sin, but never condemns. Remember Romans 8, 1, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you may feel guilty for your sin, and the difference, between, the difference between conviction and condemnation is this, is that condemnation causes us to run away from God while conviction causes us to run to Him. And the Spirit always beckons us to run to God the Father. And not only that, that the Spirit in us grows us in our relationship with the Lord. Now, have, have you experienced this? Maybe if you've been a Christian for a little while, you begin to look at your life and you're like, what is happening to me? There is something that's almost unexplainable that is happening to me. It's the fruit of the Spirit is being developed in you because the Spirit is planted in you, all right? Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like, like there are moments where you show self-control. There used to be this temptation that would come at you and you'd fall every single time, and now because of the Spirit in you, you actually show, show some self-control, and you're like, what is happening to me? You almost don't even recognize yourself anymore, and people are coming up to you going, who are you becoming? You're like, I don't know. It's like something's going on in here. It's, it's evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. The book of Hebrews says that the Holy Spirit is deposited in you. That the Holy Spirit is a deposit. Sort of like um, if you were going to go on vacation to somewhere in Miami, and you made a deposit on a vacation home. You saw it online and sight unseen. You called them up and you go, hey, listen, um, I want to stay there. Can you book me a room? And they're like, yeah, but I need a deposit. So you're like, great. So you give them your credit card and you, you, you make a deposit. So that one day you show up at your vacation and say, hey, I think you have a room for me. And they go, yep, actually, we've been preparing this place for you. And because of your deposit, we've been holding it for you. The Holy Spirit is the deposit on you for heaven. That, that there will be a day, if you're in Christ, that you'll show up to heaven and go, hey, I think I have a reservation. And they'll say, yeah, actually, Jesus has been preparing a place for you, and the Holy Spirit held your spot. He's deposited in you as your de deposit for heaven. That's the Holy Spirit in every single one of us as a believer. And here's what's cool, is that Jesus said, Jesus said in, in John chapter 16, verse 7, He says, it's to your advantage that I go away so that I can send to you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. It's kind of the, the, um, the thought behind my friend J.D.'s book that the Spirit in you is greater than Jesus beside you. Do you know Jesus said things like, you will do even greater things than I have done. And you think, are you sure about that, Jesus? And he, he, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about when Jesus was here on earth, he was limited geographically to wherever Jesus was. But with the Spirit in us, then he covers the whole earth all the time. That right now there are miracles going on all over the earth, not just in this one little place where Jesus is. Because I know what you think. No, no, I think if Jesus was right here, it would be better. Like, can you imagine if Jesus, you know, six foot whatever from the AD TV show, like if he was here with us, 
Like he was your buddy, you were walking around with him beside you, and you had a theological question, and you were like, hey, Jesus, what did you mean when you said this? And he would be like, fear not, my son. And he would tell you, truly, truly, I say unto you, and you'd answer all your questions. You'd be like, that's cool. Or if you were at a party with Jesus, and you ran out of wine, you could show up with a bucket of water and be like, hey, bro, you want to do your thing, you know? Sorry, Baptist, just read your Bibles. All right, or... Like if your beloved pet dog died, you could be like, hey, Jesus, can you help me out? And Jesus could say, arise, bring your dog back from the dead. Or for you cat people, if your cat died, you could go to Jesus and he could help you dig the hole to put your cat in. <clears throat> and you'd say, hey, that'd be great, but here's the thing, because he's not limited to the... the flesh anymore, but he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he sent the third person of God, the Holy Spirit, to us to dwell in every single believer, then it's better, it's greater, that we all have that kind of availability to God. And here's, here's another evidence of the Holy Spirit, because I know the Holy Spirit's working in this place. I know he is, and one of the reasons I know, it's sort of like videos, like that testimony video, is because people like you come up to me and say, hey, listen, you were speaking to me today. I, I hate to break this to you. I don't know you. I don't know you. I, I, I know a few of you. And, and let me just say that I don't check your Facebook page. I'm not like tailoring the sermons for you at all. That's just the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And nobody called me. Your husband did not call me and be like, hey, bro, you talk about credit card debt real quick. You know, no, that is not how we do it. That's why I say that the sermons are moderately delivered and exceptionally received because the Holy Spirit takes them somewhere in the stage area or podcast or wherever it is, and by the time it hits your ears and gets into your heart, the Spirit gives you exactly what you need to hear. Because sometimes y'all hear some junk. I didn't even say. You come out to me and be like, oh, three weeks ago when you talked about this. I'm like, whose church you been to? But whatever, it don't matter. It's the Spirit at work in you. And so part of a, one of the markers to know that you have this relationship with God, is that he has deposited in us the Holy Spirit because he has given us of his spirit. The second marker is this, is that we confess Jesus. Now, I know you're like, ah, that seems like a circular argument. How do you know you believe in Jesus? Because you believe in Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, John was a first-hand witness. He was an eyewitness to this. He's saying, this is, I'm not talking to you about just some kind of religious philosophy, okay? I'm not just talking to you about a belief system that I'm trying to buy into to, you know, make my family better. No, no, no. The things I'm talking to you about, we've seen and heard. I used to go fishing with this guy and camping with this guy. And I watched him raise people from the dead. And the crazy thing is, is that he said he was going to die on the cross for our sins and be resurrected from the grave. And three days later, I, he is. We're eating breakfast together on the, on the shores. You see, he says that this is real, that he has experienced this, that, that we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, not a life coach to tell you how to live better, but a Savior to take away sins. That's, that's who Jesus is. And then he says this in verse 15, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. There's a lot here. I want to start with the first word. Is that whoever? Whoever. You might want to underline whoever. The reason that the Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ is because of words like this. You know who is invited by Jesus? Whoever. 
whoever. We are a movement for all people, for all people, all kinds of people, all colored people, socioeconomic classes, especially with our world just in chaos, trying to draw lines about who's in and who's out. We are a movement for all people, for whoever would surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, regardless of your past, regardless of your current situation, regardless of your orientation. Can I just tell you this? We're all oriented towards sin. Every single one of us are oriented towards sin. And all of us are invited to come and not tell Jesus how, to, how we're going to live, but to have him love us, die for us, and be the Lord and commander of our life. We are a whoever church. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. That's relationally. When you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with the Father and he and God. And so we have come to know and believe the love that, that God has for us. You know how you do that? You know how you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ? One of the ways so that we can remember it and understand it, I try to explain it. It's, it's as simple as ABC. And the reason I, I just try to explain it as simple as ABC is because that's just the way I think about it. That what it means to surrender your life to Christ, it, it starts with A, that you admit that you're a sinner. That you and I admit, you know what? I've been doing this thing my way instead of God's way. All right? That you admit that all, none of us are perfect. All of us have messed up. That we, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the B is that you, we believe that when Jesus died on the cross, it actually counted for us. Now, there, there really are some people that think, well, I, don't really, I didn't really need him to die for me because I'm that good. Th- then you have the greatest sin, which is pride. And then you have some other people that think, yeah, well, I know he died for some of those religious people and the morally good people, but he couldn't die for me because I'm too bad. Your, your badness pales in comparison to the bigness of God's grace shed on the cross. And then the C is confess, that you confess. You confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You admit that you're a sinner, that you believe in Jesus, not just believe that. We'll talk about that next. And that you confess, okay, I surrender, I give up. You're the boss. I'm not the boss of me anymore. And so that's what he says. So, when, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The problem when we see these words know and believe is we think like Americans because, you know, that's what we are. And we think cognitively. We think, yeah, I, I know and believe about God and Jesus. I know some Bible stories and I believe that, that Jesus was a historical figure and died on the cross and stuff. But, but that's not what this is talking about to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. I'll illustrate it with this stool. You see, there's not a person in here that doubts that that's a stool. We all know and believe that that is a stool. And a lot of times the way we approach our faith is not by faith, it's really by knowledge. And we don't believe in, we just believe that. And, and everybody's like, yeah, I agree, that's a stool. And I can, we can agree that this is the color and we can even take it apart and measure it and see how much weight it would hold and all of those kinds of things. And in fact, some of us get really enamored by the stool and, and learn all these facts about the stool and could sing songs to the stool. Oh, great and mighty stool, we bless you and your holy stoolness. Okay, whatever it is. But that's not knowing and believing. This word know here, when the Bible talks about know, it's not just a knowledge of, well, I'll give you this one. Genesis 4.1, the Bible says this, and Adam knew Eve and she bore a child. <laughs> All right, so there's knowing and there's knowing. You know what I mean? There's like a difference between Facebook stalking a girl and marrying her. And those are two different kinds of knowledge. When the Bible talks about to know God, it means to be in like this intimate relationship with God. And when, when it says believe, the Greek word is pistuo. It means to believe and trust, commit your whole life into. There is no such thing as just believe that 
in this word. It means to believe, to trust, to commit your whole life into. And so that act of salvation is when you, when you respond to the gospel in this way. You go from holding up your own weight to transferring your weight onto the stool. That's it. That's what it means to know and believe or to love and trust. When you say, I am not going to hold up my weight anymore. I am going to trust this stool to hold up my weight. I'm going to transfer lordship from me to this stool. Do you know how I know you trust the chair that you're sitting in? It's not because you can remember sitting in it. It's not because you prayed a prayer to your chair. It's not because you sang a song to your chair. It's not because you, you did all the work to figure out and test whether that chair would hold you up. The way I know that you trust the chair that you're sitting in is because you're sitting in the chair. It's that the current posture that you have right now demonstrates the fact that you trust that that chair can hold you up. That's what John means when he says that to know and to believe. Not just to believe that there is a chair in this room and to believe that it might hold you up, but to actually transfer your weight onto the chair. And that's what he's talking about in salvation. Not to just believe that there is a God and not just know some Bible stories, but to transfer the weight of our life onto Him. That's what he means when he says to know and to believe. Then it goes on to say, God is love and whoever abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Again, this is the second time that the Bible says that God is love. Now, love is not God. It doesn't mean that every little ooey-gooey feeling that you have, you can attribute to God. That's not it. But that God defines what love is. Not you, not me, not your emotions, but God defines what love is, because God is love. And God's predisposition is love. He has to be stirred to wrath or stirred to anger. Many of you believe that God's predisposition is anger, and He has to be appeased to kind of be okay with you or love you. It is the exact opposite. That God is love. And this is good news in verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us. Did you know that if you are in Christ, you are being perfected? Did you realize that? That you are on your way to perfection. Now, trust me, you've got a long way to go. Okay, I can see you from here. But you are on your way to perfection. Because when the love of God is in you and God loves you and you surrendered your life to Him and love Him back, that means that your salvation process is going all the way to the end and all the way to perfection. Here's what it means. That moment when you transferred your weight off your own feet onto, onto Jesus, in that moment, you were saved past tense. It happened. It's over. It's a definite point in time. Even if you can't remember exactly when it happened, that's fine. And in that, it's what theologians call justification. Now, it's not, it's not a great definition, but it's the way I remember it. The word justified just means justified never sinned before. Like when God looks at you because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, it's just if you'd never sinned. He sees you as holy and blameless. And so justification, that means that you have been saved. Saved from what? You've been saved from the penalty of sin. That the almighty, righteous judge and king of the universe has accredited Christ's payment for your sin. And you're justified. But from that moment when you surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, regardless of how it happens. You know, if you didn't get the words right or you raised your hand or you checked the box or you had to walk an aisle or do jumping jacks. It doesn't matter. It just, if when you did that place where you surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, from that breath until the day you die, 
then you are on this salvation process of what Philippians says is being saved. Theologians call that sanctification. And all sanctification is, if justification saves us from the penalty of sin, sanctification is this ongoing process of saving us from the power of sin. This is growing in your relationship with God. This sanctification just means to look more and more and more like Jesus. Not from the outside in, but really from the inside out. It's sort of like this. Um, Michelangelo is quoted as saying about the sculptor David when asked, how did you sculpt such an incredible masterpiece? And he said it was easy. I looked at that big stone and I just chipped everything away that didn't look like David. That's the sanctifying process of God in your life. You know what God is doing in you right now if you are a believer? And this is a mark of a believer as he's chipping away everything in your life that doesn't look like Jesus. Like pride and hate and all of those kinds of things. He's just chipping them away and chipping away. Now that is often not very comfortable at all, okay? It's a hammer and a chisel and an aisle. Ooh, what was that? That was the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying you and convicting you of all those things that don't look like Jesus. And so there's justification. And it saves us from the penalty of sin. And there's sanctification, which is saving us from the power of sin over our life. And then one day you're going to be perfected in heaven, and it's called glorification. That we'll have glorified bodies, and there will be no sin. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. You know what that means? That you are on your way to perfection. Whatever that thing is that you struggle with right now, no more. That addiction, no more. That insecurity, no more. Listen to me, ladies, that you struggle with insecurity. There will be a day in heaven, you'll wake up and you'll see a mirror and you'll be like, dang, all right? Every day for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you'll have that kind of God confidence about your resurrection body. Amen? Amen? See, you still don't even believe me. You're like, I don't know. That's all right. A lot of chipping that needs to happen. All right. Now... Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 29 and 30. This verse is going to make some of you nervous. That's okay. Unless you're Presbyterian, you're going to love it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Don't freak out about that word. That word predestined just means predestined. That's what it means, all right? Let me split it up. Do you believe God has a destiny for you? Yeah. Don't we all believe that God has a hope and a future for us, a plan for our life? Yeah. That's what destiny means, all right? Do you think he's making it up on the fly? Kind of seeing what you do. You going to church today or not? You know, no, I think, he's, I think he has established that, that he's pre-thought about this. And so that's what it means to have a predestiny or predestined. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know what this means? When the salvation train of your life leaves, it goes all the way to its final destination in heaven. You should hear these verses and you should go, ah, and relax. Because you know what these verses mean? God is leaning in saying, I got this. I got this. And you're like, no, God, I might screw it up. He's like, dude, you can't. I don't know if he calls this dude or not, but he, he says, you can't. You can't. Because when I called you, I conformed you, I predestined you, you were on your way to glory. You've been justified, you're being sanctified, and one day you will be glorified. And that's because we confess Jesus. So the first mark is the deposit of the Holy Spirit. The second mark is that we confess Jesus. And when we do, we're on our way to perfection. The third mark is this, is no fear. No fear. Verse 18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, the reason I read you that list of fears is this, that, that we live in the land of fear. You get this? I think, there's no way I can prove this, but whatever. I, I think that we live in the most fear-saturated society in the history of humanity. And yet, we live, especially in Jacksonville, we live in the safest environment in the history of humanity. It's just true. You know what none of us have to be afraid of? After church today, nobody has to wait out at the front and be like, all right, you ready, family? All right, watch out for the tigers. All right, go. No, none of us are going to be eaten by animals. None of us are going to die from the elements. None of us are going to starve to death. And yet, you know what the number one prescribed and purchased drug in America is right now? Fear, anxiety, depression, medication. Now, if you're on that, and I know a lot of you are, and many of you should be, I, I am not anti, all right? It's called the common grace of God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. No problem, all right? And sometimes God heals through supernatural, just healings. Sometimes he heals through doctors and nurses. And if you are one of those, do you realize you're doing the work of God? And sometimes he heals through appeal, pill, and sometimes he heals through, through um, hospitals and all of that. Yes and amen. But it should not be the number one drug that everybody in America is going for. That we are full of fear, we are full of anxiety, we are full of worry. And we worship at the altar of safety. But the Bible says there is no fear in love. That perfect love casts out fear. So if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And earlier it says that God is love. So we can rightly put Jesus' name right here where it says perfect love casts out fear. That Jesus casts out fear. And I'm telling you, man, we live, we live in such a fearful society. You know who are the worst? Parents like me with kids our age. That we're the worst. Just worship at the altar of fear. I remember we brought our kids home. Man, we had to harness them up in one of those seats and like a helmet. I'm telling you, Neil Armstrong wasn't as well protected to go to the moon as my kid is to go to Walmart, right? And we're so afraid. Did any of you grow up that way? We didn't even have seatbelts in my dad's 73 Chevy. We'd be driving down the road, no AC, you know, that little terrible radio, just listening to Ring of Fire. It's the only song that sounded right on his radio. And we had his little triangle windows, and he's smoking like a freight train, and occasionally he'd let us crack the triangle window to <clears throat> breathe a little oxygen. My younger brother, Russ, is standing on the seat in the 73 Chevy like this. Why? Because if my dad was going to jam on brakes, he'd just do the bionic arm thing and hold him back. And occasionally, I've told you this before, I'd reach down, I'd find a seatbelt, I'd be like, Daddy, what's this? He'd be like, Boy, tuck that back down in there, it's going to fly around and hurt somebody. Okay, Daddy. <laughs> Remember when you were a kid, you'd leave your house, right? You'd leave your house, get on your bicycle, and go wherever you wanted. Wherever, just ride around all wherever, all right? In the road. I don't think they invented sidewalks until like 1996, all right? And so you just ride around in the road, and you just had to be home before the light comes on. And most of us, man, if we don't have like a GPS tracker on our kid every single second, we're full of fear. We freak out. It's crazy. You know what? Fear is fundamentally a lack of trust in God. That's what it is. That's why he says that there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. You know what? Especially as a kid. You know when I was never afraid? When I was with my dad. We were in that 73 Chevy with my brother standing next to us, and we were on our way fishing. I didn't worry about anything. Why? I knew my dad had it under control. I didn't know if we had a fishing license. I didn't, know, I didn't know what the tide report was. I didn't know any of that stuff. All I knew is I was with my daddy, and he had it under control. And I believe that's why he's saying there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now, here's the thing. God, does, he, he cast out fear. 
He doesn't invite it to lead, leave. He, he doesn't coexist with it. Do you realize that fear is an inappropriate roommate for the Christian? It's an inappropriate roommate for the Christian. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to take your fear and not hug it and not cuddle it and not tame it. He wants to cast it out. There's some other places in the Bible where it uses the word cast. One is cast your nets. You ever throw a cast net? You do not dip it down into the water like this gently. No, you chunk that thing so it'll open up. That's what God wants to do with your fear. He wants you to chunk it. You know where else the, the word cast is used? Is that Jesus would cast out demons. He didn't go up to the demons and be like, hey guys, um, sorry to bother you. But if you don't mind, no! He would take hold of the demons and jerk them out of somebody and cast them into a bunch of pigs. Remember we did that one? And ran them off a bunch of uh, this cliff until they fell in the ocean and drowned dead. Take that demon. Ha! That's what he did to demons. He cast them out. That's what he wants to do with your fear. You know where else it's used? is in um, 1 Peter 5, 7. The Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. That he invites you. He goes, okay, okay you scared? Are you worried? You got some concerns? I want you to take that, and I don't want you to come and lightly bring it to the altar. Because you know what we do when we just bring that to the altar? I mean, it's a big deal. We come to the altar, and we lay down our fears nice and gently, and we pray, dear God, I just want to lay these down. And then when you leave, and you pick them up, put them back in your pocket, and just take them home with you. Don't do that. When you get up here, you take them, because the Spirit of God is in you, perfect love is in you, and you chunk those things to me because I'm going to take your anxieties and your fear and I'm going to cast them out of you. There is no fear in love. Now, here's, why, here's maybe why the Bible commands us 366 times to fear not because every single one of us are afraid. Every day we're afraid of something. And the truth is that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And here's why, because fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And why do we not have to be afraid of punishment if you're in Christ? Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Because Jesus made a payment that satisfied God. So when you go before the great white throne judgment of God and you stand before Him, and He's not just looking at your highlight reel, but He sees the B-roll and all the uncut version... Guess what? If you are in Christ, you can stand there and not be afraid because he's going to look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you could go, you probably shouldn't do this, but you could go, um, I eject, I didn't really do that much good. And he goes, I know, but, but my finished, but the finished work of my son on the cross is counted or accredited or imputed unto you. And how do we know this? Here's how we know, because the thief on the cross, we talk about this guy a lot. He was a nobody, he was a nothing, but he got quoted in the Bible, so I guess he's kind of a big deal. And he's there, and he's a thief, and he's guilty, and he says, Jesus, remember me this day when you go before your Father in heaven. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that dude didn't do anything good, nothing. He's hanging on the cross. Look, in 1122 world, he never went on a mission trip. He didn't sponsor, sponsor any compassionate kids. He never walk, once walked in the Connect Center. He didn't do anything good. And that day he heard God say, well done. He didn't do anything. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Why? Because Jesus is the propitiation for his sin, the payment that satisfied the wrath of God, and he cast out that fear because there was no punishment. So the four markers are the Holy Spirit's one that we confess Jesus is two, that there's no fear. And the fourth one is this, is that we love. That we love Here's how it says. It says, we love because he first loved us. 
We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, and he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have heard from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. I prayed this, I think, last week. I would like for the church of 1122 to be known above everything else as a church that loves. That we love one another. That we love one another. And you know what that means? Can I just tell you this, though? That love demands the truth. That you cannot withhold the truth from somebody and say that you love them. Or I'll say it this way. Love is not cheering on the drowning man for his backstroke that is not working. It is not that, that you are not loving that person who is dying and drowning while, while, while just saying, hey, way to go. No, you've got to throw them a life raft. And so we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what that, that means? Here's, here's where that starts with us at the Church of 1122. Is it, do we accept people? We accept anybody. We're a movement for all people. Yeah, but what about the sinners? That's all of us. You get that? If the sinners have to leave, then follow me because we're out of here. You understand? It's why Jesus came and died on the cross. Yeah, but what about this particular sin? Yep, he covered that one too. Hold on. I don't know how you saw it because you may have a plank in your eye. You might want to jerk that thing out before you can uh, talk about the speck in somebody else's. Do you get this? That, That except, I'm quoting my buddy J.D. again, that God's acceptance is not the reward for having liberated ourselves, but God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. But in that acceptance, it is not love to withhold the truth from anybody. And so what I try to do and what we want to do as a church over and over and over is just to hold up the mirror of the perfect word of God and say, I love you so much that yes, I accept you right where you are and I love you too much to let you drown. Will you please grab onto the life raft of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we love one another. We love one another. So here's the point. Here's the point. That love is revealed in freedom and forgiveness. Love is revealed in freedom and forgiveness while fear is rooted in control and condemnation. And perfect love, that's Jesus, casts out fear. That love is revealed in freedom and forgiveness while fear is rooted in control and condemnation. So let me just ask you this. Just jump around on your toes a little bit. So what are you afraid of? I mean, straight up, what are you afraid of? Some of you are parenting in fear. You're parenting in fear. And here's how I know. Because your parenting style is, is, is all about control and condemnation. And let me just tell you, you cannot control everything that's going to happen to your babies. Whether they're 8 months or 8 or 18 or 28. You, can, you are not in control of those things. They are on loan from God. And of all the people in the whole world that God decided to raise those people, He gave them to you. He believes you have what it takes to raise them. But it cannot be about control and condemnation. What are you so afraid of? Do you trust God that He's a good dad, that He is their Heavenly Father, and even loves our kids more than we do? Do do your kids feel condemned always? Do they associate their name with negativity? Gosh, I hope not. Or do your kids live in this environment of freedom and forgiveness, and I'm not talking about just let them run amok. Oh, no, 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 no. You raise them in the way God has instructed us to. Some of you are dating in fear. You're trying to control him. You're trying to control her to obey the way you have in your picture to meet all of your expectations, and it is rooted in fear, and there is no fear in love. And maybe you wonder why this relationship isn't going where you think it ought to go. 
Some of your marriages are defined by fear, by control and condemnation. And I get it. Some of you are afraid that it's going to fall apart and that there's nothing that you can do about it. I'm just going to tell you this. If the gospel is true, and if Jesus Christ can come back from the dead, he can resurrect your marriage. What are you so afraid of? Just go for it. I mean, step out in perfect love and say, God, I need your help. I can't figure this out. I'm afraid everything I've dreamed of is going to fall apart. I need you to cast this fear far from me. Some of you are afraid financially. Look, I get it. These are legitimate fears. And you're afraid that your business is about to shut down, that you're about to lose your home, you're going to get foreclosed on, and you're afraid. Here's the thing. Here's the problem with that fear. Here's the problem. You think that if you could just get control of it, you could fix it. That's the problem. Do you really believe that he's still got the whole world in his hands? Do you really believe that he is a good dad and he actually knows what he's doing and he wants what's best for you? Then give it up. Give it up to him. Some of you have some fears over health concerns. And listen, I'm telling you, I am no Superman here. If the doctor called me today and said, hey, dude, you got cancer, I don't think I'd just... Dun, 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 dun. No, I would have to run to these 366 verses in the Bible and claim them. Be anxious for nothing. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Those kinds of things. But you know what? Fundamentally, do you trust him? Do you trust that God is the sovereign king of the universe and he's still got the whole world in his hands? Because I'm going to tell you, the reality is, is whether you're the picture of health right now or you're on your, on your deathbed 100 years from now, it's all a short little lifespan. You get that? In the scope of eternity, the Bible says it's like a mist. Here today, gone today. It's like that. So what are you afraid of? There are some of you, and you know God has called you to do something. Whatever that is. Leave something, go to something, keep fighting you know he's called you to do it. When you read through his word, man, you sure do have to do some gymnastics to get it to say what you want it to say. You know what it says, you just don't like it. And you know he's called you to do something, to take some kind of leap of faith, to start something, stop something, whatever it is. You know it. And there's been one thing that's keeping you from it. It's fear. It's just fear. What are you afraid of? Do you trust God or not? In your, in your notes, for the final thought, I put... Um, Matthew 8, but I've got to, I'm switching. You can read that. That's extra credit. Good luck. All right, go to Matthew chapter 6 if you want to. Jesus talks specifically about fear in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he says about fear. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. That's a fear word. Do not be anxious or afraid. Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. Now listen, he didn't preach in a Walmart like I do. He, they were outside on the mount. They, and I don't think Jesus was saying, hey, next time you're out in the woods, try to look at a bird. That's not what he's saying. I think he's going, look over there at the birds. See the birds? Look at them. We've got an illustration flying by right now. Everybody take a look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You get this? No bird woke up this morning going, what am I going to wear? And they look great. And then he asked this question, are you not of more value than they? I hate to break this to PETA, but we are more valuable than birds. We are. We are not just, you know, highly evolved cells. We're not. We are, we are image bearers of the most high God. And God says, you are a big deal to me. That I love you so much that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
And the price that he paid for us was his son, Jesus. Then he goes on to say, And which of you, by being anxious, well, I'll skip, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than, than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? You got that? The answer, none of us. None of us, by worrying, can add to our life. I mean, find an old guy that's really living life. And say, man, what's the secret? <sighs> Worry, fear, anxiety. Is it not the exact opposite? I mean, medicine tells us now that if that's the way you live, it will take hours off of your life. Worrying about your life actually shortens your life. i tell you one of the coolest things I've heard in a long, long time. Dr. Paul is a, one of the elders here, and he's 81 years old. And at our last elders retreat, he just said, I want to thank you men for the best five years of my life. From 76 to 81, he's going, those are the best ones. Oh, my gosh, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And if you know him, he's the most alive 81-year-old I've ever met. I don't know a lot of them, but he's awesome. And you know what? He don't fear a lot. He said that right after he got back from Africa. Some of you punks are 30 years old and scared to go to Africa. And we've got an elder that's 81 years old kicking your butt, flying to Africa and back. Get over yourself. Be not afraid. I'm telling you, you're even afraid to clap. All right, I know. And it's killing you is what Jesus is saying. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Again, he's not telling you to go out and pick flowers. He's, the birds have flown away. Everybody, we're still outside on the mountain. Look over here at the flowers. Here's the next illustration. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? In other words, don't be afraid. And he says, for the Gentiles seek after the, these things. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when you're afraid, you act like there's no God. No, but I believe in God. No, you believe that is the God. Do you trust that he's a good dad, and he loves you, and he's still got the whole world in his hands? So if that's the case, then perfect love drives out fear. Be not afraid. And you can't just like and not be afraid. It's like trying to sleep. It, you just can't, okay? You've got to take that fear and you've got to cast it upon him. So he says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying what will we eat or drink or wear. For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Then he ends with this verse. He ends with this verse. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The NIV says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. You know what fear is? Fear is reaching out to tomorrow and grabbing the troubles and the fear and the worry and dragging them into today. And Jesus said, don't do that. Do you know why I think there's some version of do not be afraid 366 times in the Bible? Because every single day we need a do not be afraid. Not for tomorrow. Not for tomorrow, but for today. I think when Jesus was preaching Matthew 6, I think, I'm just kind of taking a stab in the dark, but I think he had in mind Lamentations 22 and 23. I'll read it for you. I know you all have it memorized, but let me just look, read it. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
What is new every morning? The mercies of God are new every morning. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Do not be afraid about tomorrow. Why? Because God's mercies for tomorrow have not been given to you yet. Do not reach out and be afraid of tomorrow and try to drag that into today. The Bible says His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so 366 times, we've even got, on the non-leap year years, you get an extra one. You get that, how good and gracious is our God. That He says, be not afraid, perfect love casts out fear. Did you know that's why we do this altar thing at the end of the service? It's not just a neat way to end the service. It's so that you can get off of your blessed assurance and walk down here and cast all your cares upon Him. I mean, chunk it like a net or chunk it like a demon into pigs and grab that fear and throw it upon Him. Take that, God. I can't handle this. I'm freaking out. And He goes, okay. But you woke up this morning to new mercies. To new mercies. To just get you through today. The only one that knows tomorrow is His. He's already there. He's got tomorrow already figured out. You quit worrying about that. And you take all your cares. I mean, your fear. Your fear of parenting and your fear of finances. And your fear of your broken marriage. And your fear that you're going to fail. And you take all those fears. And I know they just creep up. And they're legit, man. I'm not saying they're not legit. If they weren't legit, he wouldn't have told us every day of the year, be not afraid. And you take them. And you cast your fears and cares upon him. Because he cares for you. And then you watch that perfect love Cast that fear out of you. And don't worry about tomorrow. Don't grab those things and drag them in today. But He has given you the mercies by the grace and the shed blood of Jesus. He has given you new mercies every morning to get through this day. And then guess what? Tonight, when you lay your head down and you go to sleep and you wake up tomorrow, and maybe all of your circumstances has not changed, but what has changed is there He offers it again. Brand new mercies for you to get to what's called today again and again and again and again. And you watch that perfect love cast out fear. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much that when you save us, you don't just leave us until one day you bring us to heaven, God. You're with us daily. You walk with us. You live in us, God. Lord, many, many, many of us in this room are afraid financially, relationally, spiritually, God, we're afraid of all kinds of things. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, deposited in the believers in this room, God, would you just erupt in us because we know you have not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And so, God, may we cast our cares upon you. May we chunk our fears on you. And may perfect love cast out the fear that is so ruling us. Because there is no fear in love. Because fear has to do with punishment. And you endured the full punishment on the cross. So what are we going to endure? God, we believe that you've still got the whole world in, our, in your hands because you're a good dad. And you love your kids. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And we respond. We sing. That's important. We bring our tithes and offerings. That's important. Why don't you come down here and cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Let's respond.